0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 7 through 9 and 18 through 20. You can find it on page 866 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Luke 9, 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I've heard such things? And he sought to hear him or sought to see him. And continuing to verses 18 through 20. Now it happened that he, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good
0: morning, New City. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Recently, uh, a neighbor of ours was telling us about her lifelong dream of walking the Camino de Santiago in the way of St. James. It's a, a hike. There's actually a variety of routes. But it's essentially a hike to a cathedral, uh, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, I hope I said that right, uh, in northwestern Spain. Pastor Zach and Austin actually did a section of it. I think it was like last year. Uh, anyway, our friend was telling us about this movie called The Way. It's starring Martin Sheen uh, and written and produced by his son Emilio Estevez. So we were intrigued about this, especially since it was our neighbor and it's her lifelong dream. So we sat down um, for a movie night to try to find it, as you do. Uh, And we could not find this movie anywhere. Not on Netflix, not on Amazon, not Apple, not Google, not on YouTube. Well, actually, I think we did find it on YouTube, but it was overdubbed in like Portuguese Um, which was unhelpful because none of us understand Portuguese. So after about 20 minutes of searching for this movie online, we just gave up. I pulled out my phone and I ordered the DVD on eBay. Uh, And so we had to wait days to watch something that we wanted to watch. Can you believe this in today's day and age? So now we own the DVD, if anyone would like to borrow it, and if you even know how to play a DVD anymore, um, so, but we finally, we waited, we got the DVD in the mail, we watched it, and we loved it. We were captivated by this movie. And then just recently, a friend of ours from college who's a professor had taken a group of students uh, along the Camino and has been tweeting pictures. And it's been really awesome to watch that journey for them. The Camino is known for hospitality, shown to the pilgrims, for extraordinary provision given to those who are on the way, for the beauty of the scenery, for wonderful interactions with fellow travelers and more. It's not just a site. I mean, it is a site. You can go to the cathedral, but the real deal is the walk, it's the journey, it's the way. To have the, pilgrim, the pilgrimage verified, you actually have to walk at least 100 kilometers. The whole thing from start to finish and most of the routes is around 400 kilometers, that's 250 miles if you speak American. The, um, and Jesus's first followers were called the way, before they were called Christians. We see that back in Acts chapter 9. And part of that might be because uh, of the peripatetic ministry of Jesus. Isn't that a great word? Peripatetic, it just means walking or itinerant, moving from place to place. That was Jesus's ministry. It was a moving, peripatetic ministry. See, being a Christian is more than just a set of beliefs uh, or a sense, some intellectual or theological tenets. Christianity is a way of being in the world, a way of behaving, of moving and talking and giving and laughing and eating and playing and working. Throughout this series of sermons in Luke chapter 9, we're going to hear a lot about the way of Jesus. Ryan got into it last week, and there'll be a little of that today. But really this morning, we're kind of focused on the person of Jesus, or particularly one or two questions about him. So in Luke chapter 9, here, uh, before this in Luke's gospel, we're coming off a flurry of ministry activities. Jesus is teaching and healing one after another, each person and situation, getting the attention and care they deserve. And then as Ryan talked about last week, Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out to do what he had been doing, teaching and healing and delivering. And our scripture readings this morning actually bookend the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which Ryan also talked about last week. So the first section, we read a little about Herod. So who is Herod? There was actually a bunch of Herods. You'd think they would come up with other names. It's like naming a Pope Paul or John or something. But there were lots of Herods. This Herod is Herod Antipas, called Herod the Tetrarch here in the scriptures. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. And a Tetrarch means he's just one of four subordinate rulers. Herod the Great had divvied up his kingdom among his kids. And anyway, this Herod is kind of the puppet king assigned to the region of Galilee, the area where Jesus did his thing. And this Herod is forever linked with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is another character mentioned here. He was Jesus' cousin. He was a religious wild man who preached in the wilderness, baptizing folks in the Jordan River wearing camel skins and eating bugs. He pointed people to Jesus, saying things like, Prepare the way of the Lord, and saying, He that is Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was something else, and he was not easily ignored. And so John got on Herod's hit list because, try to follow this, he criticized Herod's marriage to his brother's wife, which landed John in prison. And there he would have stayed, except that Herod accidentally had to have John beheaded because one night he'd had too much to drink, told his stepdaughter, who was also his niece, that he'd give her anything she wanted after she did a dance for him and his friends, which she did. And then she said she wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter, which was really what her mom wanted. And then Herod had already said he would do whatever she'd wanted. And so that's how John lost his head. There was a lot going on there. It's a pretty tricky story. So Herod accidentally got himself in this situation where he had to have John killed, but he kind of wanted anyway, to save his own face. And this apparently haunted him. So how's Herod feeling? It says so in this passage. It says he was perplexed. Other versions say he was puzzled, confused, worried, anxious. We might say he was freaked out because people were saying his nemesis, Headless John, is now some kind of zombie back from the dead. And yet we're also told that Herod is curious. He's curious about Jesus. He desires to see him. He's seeking to see Jesus in action. And so Herod will get his wish before too long. Jesus ends up in front of Herod on the last night of Jesus's life, on the night of his arrest. By that time, it seems Herod had decided that Jesus was not headless John, back to haunt him, and was giddy to see Jesus, but really wanted to see some sign or miracle as a party trick. Jesus did not acquiesce to his request, and that's when things started to get really ugly for Jesus on the last night before his death. But that's later on. Back to where we are here this morning. Jesus has been doing all kinds of wonderful things as a demonstration of the kingdom of God here in Galilee. Herod thinks he might be John the Baptist. Herod is perplexed, anxious, and curious. Then, if we skip down to verse eighteen, which was the second part of our reading for this morning, Jesus is out praying alone—a little personal prayer retreat that was a habit of his—and his disciples were apparently nearby. So Jesus asked them a question: "Who do you, or who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am?" And the question Jesus asked the disciples is the same question that Herod was toying around with: "What are people saying about Jesus?" Colloquially, we might say, "What's the word on the street? How are the public polls looking?" This is a conversation provoking question. Jesus is trying to get things going, right? It's a disarming question. It's a community group icebreaker question, third person question detached from the individual. Everybody wanted to chime in and give their hot take on who they thought Jesus was. Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And interestingly, this question, who is this, has been all over Luke's gospel up until this point. The folks from Nazareth ask it back in chapter four, the scribes and the Pharisees ask it in chapter five. John the Baptist and his followers, as well as Simon the Pharisee, ask it in chapter seven. And the disciples ask the same question when Jesus calms the storm in Luke eight, and then Herod here in chapter nine. Who is Jesus seems to be Luke's central question. Jesus was the talk of the town or the region, as the case may be. Everybody was speculating, who is this? And the disciples have their finger on the pulse of the word on the street because their answer is the same one as in Herod's court. They say some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets raised from the dead. So John the Baptist, we just talked about him. Some folks were saying that Jesus was John back from the dead. Some were saying that he was Elijah. So who was Elijah? Well, he was a prophet. You can read about him in 1 and 2 Kings. He was kind of one of the last bastions of faithfulness when God's people had gone sideways. It felt, to Elijah anyway, that there wasn't anyone left following Israel's gods. Everything was messed up. Sin was rampant and the whole dream was dead, except for him, he felt. He felt like he was the last man standing. So he faced off against the prophets of Baal, challenging them to see whose God was the real deal by calling out their respective deities to burn up some sacrifices. Now, spoiler alert, the prophets of Baal went berserk, cutting themselves and doing weird stuff to get their God's attention. All the while, Elijah mocked them until it was Elijah's turn And the God of Israel sent down fire to completely consume the offerings. Uh, Incidentally, when our Mika, our oldest daughter, was young, this was her favorite story in the big picture story Bible. Uh, And one night she prayed that fire would come down and consume our house. Uh, It didn't, fortunately, uh, and it was a good teachable moment. Uh, Elijah was also found himself hounded by Queen Jezebel. He got depressed. He hid out. He wanted to die. He was the one who heard the still, small voice of God. So some people were saying that Jesus was Elijah part two. And others were saying that Jesus was one of the prophets. So who were they? I mean, a lot of them are names of books of the Bible. You know, you've got Isaiah and Jonah, Joel, Habakkuk, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Malachi, you know, and so on. Any number of the prophets. We sort of get the impression that everybody was, was talking about and trying to figure out which one of the prophets Jesus matched up with. Like when we take those personality tests online to find out which Star Wars character we are or something. Opinions abounded, rumors and speculation were running rampant. It was even the scuttle button in the royal court. Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples. What if he asked us that question? Who do people say Jesus is these days? Probably some things like a good teacher, a philosopher, a role model, you might say he's just some hippie who kind of loved everybody. I found a video on YouTube, um, one of those man on the street stick the microphone in someone's face kind of things. It was filmed in New York City and here's what some of those folks said. Uh, Somebody said he's a historical figure. Someone said just a normal person like us. Guy said I have no idea, just a man, not God. So he went from I have no idea to not God in his little answer there. Somebody said he was just a selfless person. Someone called him a marketing genius. One guy said if David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. So I guess maybe like an illusionist or a, an entertainer. Someone said he was extremely enlightened and religious and moral, a wise teacher who tried to make the world a better place, more of that sort of thing, right? Now, of course, the video was edited down to a couple minutes, but among the folks that they showed, there really wasn't any negative stuff people had to say about Jesus. The word on the street, he was a good guy. Polls, favorable. For a while, there was that popular Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Remember this? Celebrities were wearing it. Apparently, Ashton Kutcher and Brad Pitt both think Jesus is their homeboy. So who do people think Jesus is? Could be a million different things, right? Oh, of course he was a prophet, prophet, priest, and king. He was the prophet, but he's more. You know, the people there can tell by the butterflies in their guts when they encounter him in the Gospels. Scholar Houston Smith, a religion scholar, Uh, but not a follower of Jesus in any traditional sense. He writes this in his book called The Religions of Man. This is from his chapter on Buddhism. He says, how many people have provoked this question, not who are you with respect to name, origin, or ancestry, but what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? Not Caesar, certainly, not Napoleon, not even Socrates, only two, Jesus and Buddha, When people carried their puzzlement to the Buddha himself, the answer he gave provided a handle for his entire message. Are you a God, they asked? No. An angel? No. A saint? No. Then what are you? Buddha answered, I am awake. Now we'll see in a moment how Jesus responds, but Jesus has been provoking speculation about who he is since his time in Galilee and probably before that. But here's the thing. All of our speculation Jesus doesn't really leave options open to us. Not if we're really honest. There's a famous argument against Jesus just being a a good guy, a moral teacher, and and, an example to follow, and so on. Thomas Aquinas made the argument, other preachers and pastors throughout the ages, J. Gresham Machen in Christianity and liberalism, but unsurprisingly, C.S. Lewis puts it just about more succinctly and colorfully than anyone. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a or something, madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can follow at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus paints us into a bit of a corner, not leaving us the option of keeping him as just a nice guy, a good teacher, a trinket, a talisman, and so on. Jesus wasn't content though, to talk about public opinion or the polls. Frankly, it seems like he couldn't care less what people thought of him. Just this week, I was reading in John chapter 7 where Jesus's brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Well, apparently Jesus wasn't concerned about being a public figure. Yeah, it's fun to speculate, to talk about who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am? But Jesus hones in with the real money question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? There was very likely a good long pause here because Luke doesn't say that they answered in unison like before. They were quick to answer the who do people say that I am. They all knew the answer uh, and could answer quickly when they were talking about what everybody else was saying. But here, Jesus presses the disciples for personal conviction. Who do you say that I am? He makes a fun third person icebreaker question into an uncomfortably avoidable first person question. Jesus gets personal. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of the the personal relationship with Jesus language. Uh, To me, it smacks of individualism and connotations of privacy or whatever else. It's my own weird hang up. Though I do like that song, uh, Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. Uh, which I learned actually was inspired by Elvis and Priscilla Presley's relationship. So there you go, some trivia for you this morning. But this this question in this passage here uh, may very well be the best evidence in the whole Bible for a need for a personal relationship with Jesus, whether I like it or not. Jesus is asking an extraordinarily, explicitly personal question. He's asking it to the disciples, he's asking it to me, and he's asking it to you. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking that of you and everyone. This is the question that everyone must reckon with personally. Everybody's got to reckon with Jesus. We have to answer this question. We can do it now or we can do it on the last day, but we will reckon with him. And I can confidently say that that he'd prefer that we all do it now. As Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Old St. Peter is the one who answers the question after the long, awkward pause, saying, you are the Christ of God. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't tell Peter he's wrong. He doesn't balk at Peter's statement of faith. And he would have had Peter been off base. Jesus has no problem telling Peter how it is, right? He called him Satan at one point. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually praises Peter for this declaration. Now imagine if you went like some great person of faith or saint. Say you went on a pilgrimage to Calcutta years ago and you went up to Mother Teresa or something when she was alive. I'm picking Mother Teresa because she was a relatively recent example of that we can all say was an extraordinary Christian, right? Say you went up to Mother Teresa and you said, you're the Messiah, you're God. What do you think would have happened, right? She would have been horrified. Any normal, humble, non-God would be horrified, right? And yet, not only is Jesus not horrified by this claim, he praises Peter for it. He leans into it. He doesn't bat an eye at being called the Messiah. You know, I imagine Jesus was like, he gets it. Finally, it clicks with Peter. This word Christ, what does it mean? No, it's not Jesus's last name. Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah, It means the anointed one. The Messiah was to be the true king, the long-awaited deliverer and savior of Israel. The Messiah would bring justice. He would reign. He would end oppression, as we sing at Christmas. In his name, all oppression shall cease. Frederick Buechner puts it this way. He says, how and when the Messiah would come was debatable. Theories as to what he would be like multiplied and overlapped. A great warrior king like David, a great priest like Melchizedek, A great prophet like Elijah, who could possibly say? But whatever he was, his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. Handel set him to music. On Passover Eve, to this day, an extra cup is placed on the table for Elijah in case he stops in to say the Messiah is here at last. The door is left open. When Jesus of Nazareth came riding into Jerusalem on his mule, small group of radicals, illiterates, and ne'er-do-wells hailed him as the Messiah, the Christ. And I might add that it was Peter was the first to say so. All the hopes and expectations of Israel fulfilled in Jesus. Didn't, Jesus didn't just preach the good news. He was the good news. Jesus, the long-awaited, anointed ruler, Messiah, the Christ. Now, when Peter said what he said, he didn't really know the half of it. Right, what is the Messiah really like? What are the implications of Peter's confession? Well, buckle up and stay tuned. We'll be getting to that in the coming weeks as we hike through Luke 9. Talking suffering, sacrifice. Listen to how one commentator put it. He says, how can it be that the angels and demons understand as a matter of course that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, whereas his disciples, his friends, his relatives, and the general populace struggle with his identity? Perhaps the answer to these puzzling questions is, may be found in the very character of Jesus and his mission. He brings the kingdom, but he is veiled in flesh, humility, rejection. For humans, Jesus creates division. Jesus was a controversial figure who created a mixed response in those he visited with his presence. His teaching and miracles did not always elicit the confession that we might expect from people. Well, so what? I suppose the best way to say it is to reckon with Jesus that's the call. You've got to reckon with them. I've been using that word a lot this morning. And I picked it up when we lived in eastern Kentucky. Uh, and I think it's perfect for what we have to do in light of this morning's scripture. To reckon means to count, to consider, to wrestle with, to mull over, think about, come to terms with, to judge, even to believe, right? If you're not yet a Christian, follow Peter and confess Jesus. Don't wait. Now, as I was thinking about Peter's confession this week, I was reminded of the story of the the jailer in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas are in prison, having been stripped and beaten. It's midnight, and they're inexplicably praying and singing hymns. An earthquake rocks the prison to the foundation and rattles the doors off the hinges and the chains off the prisoner's feet. And the jailer, who was put in charge of keeping an eye on Paul and Silas, wakes up, he was about to kill himself since he saw that the doors were open and assumed their mass prison break, until Paul stopped him and he said, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Needless to say, the jailer was shook, and he thought, Everyone had escaped on his watch and it was going to cost him, but he fell to his knees and he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And their response, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So I would say the same to you this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus. Now the challenge here is that it's acceptable, even laudable to just kind of get in a generic holding pattern and admire Jesus, to be what you might call a seeking agnostic or a casual fan. Everybody's cool with Jesus being a good guy or their homeboy. However, as Lewis hasn't left that option open to us, as he reminded us, remember what he said so bluntly, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus was and is the Messiah, and every one of us has to reckon with that. Do it now or do it later. As the Apostle Paul said, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Christian or not yet a Christian, we ought to be curious about Jesus. Be open to being surprised by him. When is the last time you were surprised by Jesus? When reading your Bible, come across something that surprised you. When looking at how God's working in your life, when's the last time you were wowed by that? And this is actually something we can learn from Herod, right? He was curious. He was puzzled, perplexed. He wasn't the only one. Throughout the Gospels, people were frequently surprised by Jesus. He was busting their expectations. We're going to see some of that in the coming weeks. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, but that was only the beginning. He doesn't understand all the implications. And honestly, neither do we. If God never surprises us, if we're not curious or perplexed about God's ways, we're probably not encountering the true God. Because if God is always meeting all of our expectations or always exactly how we think he should be, well, then who's really God in that scenario? Or as Anne Lamott says "It you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. For my paraphrase, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God never surprises you. Be curious. Be open. Let Jesus surprise you. Lastly, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper here, talk about him. Talk about Jesus. He invites this, right? The question is still valid. Who do people say that Jesus is? It's an interesting, provocative question. Use it. Ask it. Talk about it. Talk about him. Get people's hot take on Jesus. It's been 2,000 odd years, and he's not gone out of style yet. People are still talking. And if he is who Peter says he is, well, there's a lot to talk about. And do this naturally. It doesn't have to be awkward. You know, we talk about people we know all the time. If you've got a buddy that you're always telling stories about, and a friend uh, to a friend, and then that friend meets this friend, then they'll probably say something like, oh, you're so-and-so. You know, it's nice to meet you. I've Heard so much about you, right? That's, in some ways, it's kind of weird to sing these songs and affirm our faith with the Apostles' Creed and say we love Jesus or have a personal relationship with Jesus and then never talk about him to anyone else ever, right? And then the question that we can ask of ourselves to those around us, who do you say that Jesus is, right? When you find yourself surprised by Jesus, say so to those around you. Don't be weird about it. Just do what you'd ordinarily do talking about a friend. Confess Jesus like Peter as the Christ of God. Be curious, be surprised, and talk about him. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table for communion. I'll pray and then invite you to join me in praying in Jesus's prayers here in just a minute. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're so good to us, to love us and provide for us and call us to yourself. This whole world loves to speculate about you, Jesus. So many times we make assumptions and have expectations, and are never surprised because we just assume we know all about you. Forgive us our pride. Forgive us for making you in our image. Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear anew. Help us confess, like Peter, that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior. And as we come to the table this morning, we pray the way you taught your disciples to pray, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
1: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at
0: newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcityc dot Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.